You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 145. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You've reached another Local Maximum. Welcome to the show. I actually have a couple of things to put out to you today. Uh, today's episode is, I would say it's a little bit specific, a little bit targeted towards people who have an interest in philosophical and practical questions about probability, um, an interest in Python toward the end. Maybe some of you developers out there, some of you machine learning engineers out there will get a kick out of this. So I hope you really enjoy it if you're into that. Otherwise, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming in no time. But I want you to hear about what we have today. Uh, After our main event today, I want to share with you a brief conversation about the tools that ActiveState has to aid in Python development. Um, they found a kind of a pain point in Python development they're addressing. Active State is a sponsor of the local maximum, but uh, it's a fun discussion. So especially if you're a Python developer, you should stick around and listen to that. Now, today I wanted to share with you a talk I gave recently at the PyMCon conference. This is one of those recorded talk episodes. I think I haven't done that since uh, since what was it episode eleven when I spoke at Yale a couple of years ago, uh, so yeah, this is another one of those. Um, so this is from a Bayesian conference focused on the Python tool PyMC three, which is a which is a great tool to do pro- probabilistic programming in Python. Um, and then, you know the conference is kind of on Bayesian inference in general. And there I gave a talk. My talk was titled "What is Probability? A Philosophical Question." with practical implications for Bayesians. And it was meant for kind of a general-ish audience, but you'll notice that the, some of the context is targeted at this crowd, and I spent a lot of time describing you know, what we have gone over on this podcast in the beginning, um, you know, over the, the years. So it's a little bit of review uh, for some of you. So I hope you enjoy that. I apologize. I think I was on the wrong mic when I did it, so the sound quality is going to be a little, slightly more muffled than I'd like to. Uh, as a professional podcaster, but it happens sometimes. I think every podcaster would admit it. Um, so without further delay, here is my virtual talk at the October 31st, 2020 PyMCon Bayesian Conference. Enjoy. All right, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my talk, which is entitled, What is Probability for the PyMCon 2020? And it is great to be here virtually, and I look forward to seeing you all um, virtually, but but live on October 31st. So first of all, I want to introduce myself a little bit. My name is Max Sklar. I am currently a labs engineer at Foursquare. I'm actually a longtime engineer at Foursquare, which means that I work on experimental consumer products. So the one that I work on now is called MarsBot Audio and um, should be out in the app store by the time this goes out. But if not, you can, you can ask me about that. Uh, we're not going to talk about too much about that today. Uh, but I do have a lot of experience as a machine learning engineer at Foursquare, which um, which I did for many, many years. And um, I was able to kind of develop a, a toolkit of Bayesian methods when I was there. So we'll talk about that a little bit. And also, I have a weekly podcast that I do called The Local Maximum. And you can get information on there at localmaxradio.com. I'll be talking a lot about the podcast, but there's a good reason for that. So hang tight. So first of all, you might notice something a little bit different about this video. Uh, first of all, it's, uh, you know, I don't have slides, uh, which um, 
is a little different. It's something I'm trying. It's a little different. I think I can put some funny pictures up for you. I can spend hours looking for pictures, but I'm kind of with the podcast. I'm kind of growing accustomed to talking without slides for the podcast. So let's see if this works. Now you might be like, well, I want to go back to the slides. All of my notes for this, including the links with my notes, I have about three pages of notes and they'll all be available uh, to you with links. Um, after or, or before the talk. So since we don't have slides, I'm going to assume that you know a few things. I think if I had slides, first of all, I would put up Bayes' rule, but I'm going to assume that you all know Bayes' rule. You know, Probability of hypothesis given the data is equal to the probability of the data given the hypothesis times the prior probability of the hypothesis over the probability of the data. Or the way that I like to put it is um, posterior is proportional to likelihood times prior. Uh, so that's kind of a basic thing. I'm going to assume you have that. I assume you have kind of the basics of how Bayesian inference works. And, um, if not, it might be helpful to pull that up and familiarize yourself with it a little bit. But I think most of the people in this conference are solid on that. So that's kind of where I'm going to go from, from a starting point. Um, and I'm also going to assume that you've, you, you have dived in some real problems before involving Bayesian inference. And so I'm going to prepare you for how to do that in the future, or, uh, you know, we're going to, I'm hoping that you think about the problems that you solved in the past and you kind of think, hey, uh, these questions have come up, which is very surprising. So the question that I want to start with today is what is probability? And, you know, that is a really interesting philosophical questions. And it might be, you know, there might be a tendency for practitioners to say, well, I don't really care about probability. I don't care about epistemology. I just want to solve problems for my client or whatever it is. And sometimes that works, but actually sometimes you really have to dive into some of these philosophical questions because it does have implications for uh, the, the practice of Bayesian inference. Because, well, first of all, after all, uh, a lot of us are often tasked with justifying Bayesian methods. Not every place and not every client that you're going to deal with are committed Bayesians like us. I assume most of the people who are listening today are committed Bayesians, but the average person is not well-versed in probability. You know, the average person in, in sales or the average person in, in management, sometimes they're very smart people, hopefully, uh, but, you know, they're not always well-versed in probability. Probability itself, uh, uh, you know, uh, not even putting aside, you know, I don't even have time to go into all the different schools of thought into probability. So, it's very important that uh, we often be sharp on these things so we know where different people are coming from. And if somebody comes at us from a different angle, we should be able to understand where they're coming from as well. So that's pretty important. Um, this talk is going to be informative for those of you who are kind of new to Bayesian inference, but even if you're experienced, I hope you find uh, one or two or, or maybe a lot of new pieces of information or points of view that you can carry around in your toolkit. You know, looking at probability is kind of the essence of looking at all of the problems that we solve in our work and in our research. Uh, so early this year on, on the podcast, on the local maximum, I kind of decided to explore this further with a series of episodes. And um, I'll be forwarding the episodes for you to check out. And I know you might think, you know, hey, why are you pushing your podcast on us <laughs> the whole time? But look, I already did the work in presenting some of these ideas and talking to some experts and making show notes available. So I do want to tell you about all the work that I've already done 
several hours of content and it's really packed with, with information to, um, to, to, to teach you about different angles here because I can't do it all today. So it's, it's, I've, I've done the work to make it available to you for free. So localmaxradio.com is where the podcast lives and I'm going to be pointing out specific episodes if you want to dive into some, some of these issues more um, that we're going to cover a little bit more, uh, a little bit more in depth. So first of all, a couple of, of practical examples that really made a difference for me uh, when understanding probability. Uh, the first is from a, a problem that I dealt with at Foursquare several years ago, which is the problem of marketing attribution. Very big business for Foursquare, very big business uh, in general. And that is kind of the task of trying to figure out whether uh, ads work or not. Um, and there's a whole lot that I can say about causality theory, you know, which is a, which is a whole other issue that, that I had to dive in for that. But also it was just a matter of how we presented our results to the client. So for example, the client wanted to know, did my ad work or not? And really when we, when we dove into that, that problem and we tried to figure out how do we answer this? Uh, we realized that the, the, the right way to do it was uh, kind of a, a Bayesian inference. And, and the, the thing that popped out at the end was something called lift. It was like, what is the average likelihood that someone would visit your place, given that they saw the ad, um, over what would have happened if they hadn't seen the ad? Very difficult thing to compute. But even once you can compute an estimate, you don't want to give an exact number there. What you want to do is you want to give a, a, an estimate for, hey, I think the lift was 10% but I have say a Bayesian credible interval interval that I think it was maybe between 5% or 15%, or maybe, you know, I think there's a very good chance that it was 0%, but maybe you got no lift, but maybe it's between these bounds or something like that. And so not every client wanted it, wanted answers in this way, but once we thought about it in those terms on the back end, we were then to make sure we were then able to make sure that we could give the most accurate information to the clients possible. Um, another example in terms of understanding probability, which is, uh, which is very common uh, these days, which actually by the time this goes out, uh, is going to be driving people crazy, which is, the, um, which is all the election predictions. Um, you know, everybody is talking about every single poll that comes out. And if you read, you know, 538 blog or, or all sorts of things, they always have probabilities coming out about whether one candidate is going to win or another. And that's another case where I think the average person doesn't really interpret that very well. And we have the tools to maybe uh, decipher some of this a little better. Uh, one of the things that I like to point out is that this is an example of something called a martingale, which is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting vocab term, which just means that, you know, hey, today's prediction has to be the weighted average of tomorrow's prediction. So if you think tomorrow, there's a 50-50 chance that one candidate is up 60-40, but there's a equally likely chance that the second candidate is up 60-40, then today's average has to be 50-50. And so uh, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it. And you kind of look at these election predictions and they're not really, they, they are an example of subjective probability, which, I'll, which I want to talk about, which is... Um, you know, how Bayesians often look at probability. Most of us take the subjective point of view. And the subjective point of view is that 
A probability is something that is calculated by an agent with beliefs. So when you talk about somebody's beliefs, that's a point of view. And we just happen to have not clear beliefs that X is true and Y is false. Uh, we also have some probabilistic beliefs where you know X might have a 10% chance of being true and Y maybe has a 5% chance of being true. And we update those beliefs with new data and maybe different agents might have different beliefs. Some of them might not be using Bayes' rule at all. They might be using some heuristic, but they're still coming up with beliefs all the same. And we kind of consider that all probability. And we have to kind of decipher who's doing a good job, a good, you know, a, a competent job at coming up with these probabilities. The hint is if you use Bayes' rule and you use some good common practices with uh, priors and all that, then you're doing a good job. Uh, but there's still a lot of nuance in there. You know, you, you still want to know, am I gathering the right data that I want to uh, to gather? Am I looking at the data that I want to look at and all of that? So I think um, somebody that I interviewed on the local maximum that did a really good job of explaining Bayes' rule that I, I think was good for the average person that you could catch up on was mathematician Sophie Carr, who I talked to in episode 105. And I really liked her imagery of, of Bayes' rule being kind of a giant game of guess who, where, um, you know, as you're gathering more information, you're eliminating some hypotheses and leaving others open. It's kind of a probabilistic guess who. Um, and uh, so, so that's the first one that uh, you should check out. I think that um, that means that uh, when we take the subjective point of view, we want to take a personal point of view. Or in the case, like when I was doing with Foursquare what went with um, measuring ads, I was saying, hey, I'm going to build a machine here. It's going to have a lot of different parts. It's going to take in data. It's going to update these very complicated probabilistic models. And essentially, I'm going to say, hey, this is going to be our organization's take on where the probabilities lie. And so that's a very subjective way of looking at it. But it's often very helpful when solving problems. Some people maybe are a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of probability as a subjective thing. And so that's something to keep in mind, one thing to keep in mind when you're explaining Bayesian methods, because you kind of have to walk people through that a lot. Like what, why, um, you know, I, I want something to be an objective. I want something to be an objective answer. You kind of have to explain why that might not be, uh, you know, the, the, explain why the, the subjectivity actually works in a lot of different cases. So the other view, as many of you know, is kind of the frequentist point of view. And there are other views as well that I'm going to get into in a second, but this is one that that uh, you have to be well-versed in if you're going to do Bayesian inference in the real world. One thing to point out is that currently frequentist methods and sort of the objective view of probability is the dominant view of probability taught in schools and universities, both like at the high school level and at the, uh, at the, at the undergrad level, pretty much well, all throughout the United States, and I'm pretty sure it's very similar throughout the world. So I spoke to a professor about this, Brian Blaise, on the podcast. It's, you can go to episode 119, and he wrote a book on Bayesian inference, which was for a younger audience, for an undergrad audience, and it turns out that it works very well. Like, our method, Bayes' rule, is not that complicated. You could teach that in high school. You could even teach that probably you know, before high school. Okay, maybe not the, the kind of the calculus version of it, but you could teach the Bayesian way of, of looking at things very similarly. And yet uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, a, a lot of 
university professors and, and people in academia sort of see Bayes' rule, and I was kind of surprised by this, as like the really advanced math. You've got to kind of work up, work your way up to it, which really, uh, in my opinion, is not the case and kind of a, a reason why we as Bayesians sometimes have a little trouble um, explaining our point of view. So, you know, most of us didn't get Bayes until, you know, advanced courses in statistical inference or maybe in machine learning. I mean, I personally didn't really have to contend with Bayes' rule until I took, until I was in grad school and I was taking courses on data mining and machine learning and that sort of thing. So um, if you want to know, uh, and if you want to get uh, some more information on frequency's point of view, well, one of the points, one of the areas um, in science and life where the frequentist point of view really works is in the area of controlled experiments because controlled experiments are something that can be repeated over and over again. By the way, the, the, the frequentist point of view, I should point out, I kind of assume that you all know what it is, uh, but uh, the view is that probability is kind of a long run uh, value uh, that is sort of the... Um, the, the output of experiments. So for example, if you have a weighted coin, you're gonna flip coins a lot of times and you assume that each flip of the coin is independently, is sort of, you know, it, it is independent and identical. And so you keep flipping that coin and then eventually uh, the, the ratio of heads to tails, the ratio of heads to flips is going to converge onto a number and that number after an infinite number of flips, which is impossible, you can't have an infinite number of flips, but that convergence is eventually going to be called the probability. And in experimental design, where you have a very repeatable experiment, that tends to work very well. So I did a whole episode on experimental design. Uh, that would be episode 109 with Adam Kapelner. Uh, very interesting stuff there. Um, and so, okay, well, one of the people to look up in experimental design is Ronald Fisher. Very, uh, you know, a lot of work has been done there, but it's from kind of the opposite point of view that a lot of us would prefer to take. Now, another interesting thing, so a lot of this stuff was, um, was kind of debated and come up with around the turn of the century. I'm up, okay. Freezing in my own, even though this is not online. Okay, so... Uh, one of the things that uh, that I came up with, I found a lot of interesting debates and discussions that we're having at that time, maybe around the turn of the centuries, maybe about the um, 1930s, 40s, 50s. One of the ones that I found very interesting that isn't talked about very much is called the Bernstein von Mises theorem. And essentially what this, and this is um, Richard von Mises and Sergei Bernstein, uh, you know, uh, statisticians at Harvard, I think the 1930s. Uh, so basically that says that Bayesian methods do tend to converge, even if you and I say start with different priors and we're kind of looking at the same data, or even if, you know, in a lot of modern machine learning examples, we're looking at different data, but it's the same, it's from the same larger data set and we're pulling from it randomly. Then we should kind of converge on a similar answer if certain uh, certain conditions are met, and you should kind of uh, be familiar with those conditions. And 
uh, one of the, uh, so I did kind of an episode on that. That was episode 77, where I talked a lot about Bayesian thinking and in general, and you should definitely check that one out. But um, one of the interesting uh, uh, things about this theorem too, is if you look at it and you think about it pro properly, you can kind of look at frequentist methods as having kind of a somewhat of a Bayesian interpretation as well. And so it sort of says that under normal circumstances, which by the way, are broken a lot in the real world. So you have to watch out for that. The Bayesian models converge and they converge with the frequentist model, which is kind of a, a good thing oftentimes, but it does mean that you often have to translate back and forth between somebody who thinks one way and someone who thinks other uh, in another way. And sometimes you even need to translate back and forth between two Bayesians who are taking a very different approach. So what are the exceptions to this where things can't converge? This is where you can get into trouble. Well, first of all, if you have a different hypothesis space as a Bayesian, all bets are off because I could not be considering some, some of your hypotheses and you could maybe not be considering some of my hypotheses. Likewise, if my prior assigns some hypotheses to zero, then that's the same as not considering those hypotheses. And so we're not, if those tend to end up being the right answer, we're never going to converge. Um, okay, so those might be the obvious ones. Another one that happens is when you have kind of very large and complex priors and distributions. Um, one is when you have kind of an exponential distribution, you have a very fat tail where the data that we're getting can't tell us what happens. Like, you know, there are some very extreme examples that affect the average rate. Like, let's say, I don't know, um, 99.99999% of the time, I'm going to get a value between one and 10. But every once in a while, I get a value that's like billions and billions. Uh, that could happen. It actually happens a lot. And so oftentimes with uh, lots of data, even we can't pick up on that. And so that's something to, to take in mind. Sometimes I've had, you know, issues where not that particular issue, but I've definitely had issues where, you know, I was running a logistic regression model and one of the variables was um, distributed exponentially and it was trying to fit kind of a, a, a linear weight onto it that, that doesn't work too well. Um, so, I mean, one thing you can do is kind of divide it up into buckets and things like that. So uh, another time where this can fail is sort of non-parametric methods. So let's say you want to fit a mixture of distributions to the data, but you have kind of no limit on the number of components. That's often a great thing to do. It's a very flexible way to fit your data, but sometimes this might not hold. So, um, this, uh, this kind of theorem doesn't hold, and um, that could be a problem for Bayesian methods, you could say, but it's also a problem for frequentist methods, too. So everybody gets in trouble in these situations. Um, so another issue that I discovered uh, when doing all this research for my podcast is that uh, you know, Richard von Mises, who was the, the statistician, he had this brother, uh, Ludwig von Mises, who was this... Uh, who was this famous Austrian economist. And he actually had some things to say about probabilities as used in the real world. And it was kind of hard for me to wrap my head around it because we think one way here in the early 20th century is Bayesians and they kind of think another way. But I thought, I kind of thought that um, I had to contend with this because it was so interesting because he was talking about something called case and class probability. Um, and he sort of warned against treating case probability and class probability 
the same way. So I sort of knew this has something to do with um, Bayesian frequencies. This is something to do with subjective probability and objective probability, but I wasn't really sure. So fortunately, um, I was able to get a guest on the program who's an expert in this guy. His name is Bob Murphy, and I got him in episode 107, and we talked about it a little bit. And it turned out that um, uh, class probability, oh God, I'm going to forget which one is which, but one of them is class probability, where that looks like it's much closer to a controlled experiment, where you have one situation that happens over and over and over again. Philosophically, I think that um, there's also a problem with saying that we have, we're doing the exact same thing over and over again, because we know that's not exactly true. We know that there's always little differences that... Um, you know, but uh, be that as it may, it's, um, and I think, you know, Laplace talked a lot about this, where we are ignorant enough as to little differences that from our point of view, all of these iterations of the experiment are essentially equal. And so that's kind of one thing to wrap your head around that's pretty interesting. But um, essentially, when you have these class probabilities, you could really make a good uh, case for coming up with a number case probabilities are one-offs. So in the case of one-offs, I think that um, they didn't really have the tools to talk about one-offs 100 years ago. But today, with, um, with, uh, um, with, uh, with you know, the rise of, of Bayesian methods, we have very good ways of talking about one-offs. And actually, I did an episode on one-offs too. So that would be uh, episode 69. Let me actually pull up here what uh, episode 69 was called. Uh, no, it wasn't 69. Shoot. I've got to get a better number for this. I think it was, yes, 65. Episode 65, localmaxradio.com slash 65. You can get them, uh, you can get them just by typing in the number. So the chance of something that has never happened before. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why Bayesian methods in the middle of the 20th century became, started to become popular in areas like actuarial science and insurance, because, you know, people had no idea how to insure things that were very rare, never occurred before. And Bayesian methods sort of gave them the answer. So that's kind of a good factoid to have up your sleeve. Um, so coming back to the episode that I did with Adam Kapellner, because he teaches philosophy of probability in his class in, in episode 109, and it turns out there are, other, uh, there are other ways of looking at probability too, aside from subjective and objective, but they're kind of related. So one is sort of pr propensity theory. So that's the idea that, that it's, sort of, it's sort of an objective inherent way of the world. So for example, the, if you have a six-sided die, there is a propensity for each side to come up one-sixth, one-sixth, one-sixth. That's just a property of the die, property of the dice. Sometimes that's an interesting way to look at these things. Um, this is one that kind of the, one of the founders of the philosophy of science, Karl Popper, came up with. And it's sort of a mixture between the two because it's objective probability, like the frequentists propose, but it's also one-off. You could do one-off things with propensity theory. So that's more Bayesian. So very interesting kind of mixture there. And then you have kind of the logical view of probability. We're no longer talking about beliefs here, but you have the kind of purely mathematical um, 
purely mathematical take on it, where you know probability is a measure and it has these mathematical properties. And I think that's a great way to, of looking at it in some circumstances. But um, you can take your mathematical theory, and I kind of feel like once you have to plug it into the real world, which is science, which is marketing data, which is machine learning, you kind of have to figure out you know, where you stand on objective or subjective. Uh, so these issues have, uh, okay, this might sound a little bit like, you know, head in the clouds, people are talking about this stuff in universities, why do I care? Well, here's a good example of why you should care. One is that the debate between credible intervals versus confidence intervals, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot. The frequentists use confidence intervals, they're way more common, um, and usually it, it's, it, it's a, well, it, it's a formula, uh, but it's almost always interpreted as a Bayesian credible interval by the public and not just by the public, but by, uh, you know, by, by clients or bosses or anyone who's, who's, uh, who's, who's looking at this stuff. So, you know, Bayesian credible interval is just, hey, I'm going to give you a range of numbers and I believe there's say a 95% chance that the value you're looking for is in that range. And here's the median, you know, here's the median value. And I think that there's a 50% chance that the number you want is above this range. And there's a 50% chance that the number is below this range. Um, as the, you know, as a, uh, and you can see that's really focused on belief, you know, Hey, it's sort of like in my expert opinion, I believe that the value is, has this probability distribution. I think that's often a really powerful way of looking at this stuff. And frankly, I think it's better than the other way of looking at that stuff, but that's just me. Um, but you do have to kind of work on both ways. Uh, and the other is, is kind of the, 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 the credible interval is kind of more focused on, on hypothesis testing, which is, you know, we expect results to appear in this range if we had done multiple experiments with our, with, with our intended answer. So it's sort of harder to wrap your head around. Another one that's uh, very hard to wrap your head around, but it's been very difficult to wean people off is, is p-values. It's really got the same issue. And it's always worth discussing with colleagues and clients when you're doing these, these models uh, is sort of where do they stand on p-values? What's their, what's their opinion of them? Because so you know a p-value says, hey, um, what is the probability that I am going to get a result at least this extreme given the hypothesis. So you wanna know, hey, is this, did my data kind of invalidate the hypothesis? Whereas kind of in the Bayesian point of view, uh, we wanna take a look at, hey, uh, we have a range of hypotheses. What's our, what's our belief our, as represented by a probability distribution over that range, which is often a lot more intuitive. So again, when you're dealing with people who have different views on this topic, uh, you shouldn't try to overturn someone else's way of doing something. That's going to be very difficult. Think about it if somebody was trying to overturn your way of doing something. But you kind of have to be aware of how different people perceive probability. And then you have to translate effectively to and from the Bayesian worldview or your own worldview on probability, which, which you should often be thinking about. So I'm going to leave you with one more example uh, from you know, just philosophical thinking and, you know, well, I can't just talk all day about what other people think. I have to talk about an, an idea that I think is not quite original, but it's sort of my idea on, on what probabilities are. And it's related to Bayesian inference, uh, you know, before we close up, because it's, uh, 
it's sort of important to me. So I did an episode on this, which is episode 108, uh, localmaxradio.com slash 108, where I tried to answer once and for all, what is probably not once and for all, what is probability, but I, I gave myself a homework assignment. I said, okay, I'm going to try to give you my take on what is probability in this episode. So I, I, I attempted to do it. Spoiler alert. I basically take the subjective point of view, which is common among Bayesians, and I assume common among you too, but if you have a different view, I actually like to hear about it. Um, I also tend to look at probabilities as, as ratios, which is a little bit different. That probability is kind of a relative property versus an absolute property. So instead of saying, hey, there's a 50% chance that this coin will land on heads, maybe I'm going to say, hey... Um, you know, the probability of X is twice as likely of happening as the probability of Y. And you can kind of translate that from relative to certain. So for example, I want to know the weight of the die. I can say, okay, what is the probability of getting a heads versus the probability of getting a heads or tails? And so then you can kind of see the inherent assumption uh, there that uh, certainty is getting heads or tails, which is a good assumption, but as we know, not, probably not, probably not ironclad, 100% true. But um, interestingly enough, uh, this idea of relative probability where I can say one event is twice as likely of another as another without actually knowing uh, what the absolute probabilities are, this works really, really well when it comes to doing Bayesian inference. Because when you look at these complex posterior spaces that we use when we apply Markov chain Monte Carlo, and we use, you know, pi MC3, and we apply the no U-turn um, uh, algorithm. Um, this works really well because in, in those Bayesian posteriors, the denominator of Bayes' rule, the marginal probability is often dropped because when you do Markov chain Monte Carlo, uh, each step you want to know if I want to go from this uh, hypothesis, and I want to jump to this other hypothesis, and all you care about is the relative probability of each hypothesis. And we don't have the denominators, we don't have the absolute probability of each one. And oftentimes those denominators are not even tractable. So it's great that uh, we can actually have some interpretation of this that is sort of independent of, well, we have this intractable denominator, let's pretend it's there. And so now, Probabilities often live in a in a ratio space, which is which is really interesting. It's not just you know probability of A; it's often probability of A over probability of B, which means it's a it's a number, it's a positive real number. And so the, the ratio space is a very interesting symmetry around around one, which is a really nice number system to work with, in my opinion. So that's something more to think about. If you have any more ideas on how to take this. Uh, idea to the next level, I'd be very interested to hear about it. So I think we're running out of time. I hope you learned a couple of things from this. I just want to conclude with a few quick takeaways from my talk. One, okay, I'm going to say this, you can get a lot more information on the Local Maximum podcast, localmaxradio.com. So check that out. I've done a lot of work on that or reach out to me directly if you have more questions. Two, the philosophical basis for probability is still very much an open discussion. People still think very differently about it and affects the way that people approach real problems. And it actually comes up, you know, when you're talking to other people in the field, trying to come to a consensus here. 
Uh, three, you're going to encounter many views on probability, and it's often going to fall to you to explain your point of view and also translate it into other points of view for people you work with or interpreted it or, inter or to interpret it. So uh, you not just, it's your job not just to be a modeler, but to be a teacher as well. And if you get those skills, you can be, you know, you, that is a very marketable, rare skill in, in today's world. And four, I just want to conclude with this. I didn't say it directly, but as Bayesians, I just want everyone to know that we have a very, very powerful toolkit at our disposal. And it's taken many years from the foundations of science and trial and error to the rise of machine learning and probabilistic programming like PyMC3 to really build up to this point. And we have special insights into solving problems that many people just don't have. So you know, don't look down on people who don't have these insights because it's a very special thing, but uh, you're often going to be the expert in the room on this and don't forget it. So thank you very much. You can uh, reach out to me and I look forward to meeting you all uh, on um, in this conference. All right. I just want to stop in and talk a little bit with Sean Lowry from activestate.com. As many of you who listen to the show know that Active State has been a, has been a sponsor for a while. Sean, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? Good, except all these Python problems. My God, it's been nagging at me. No, no not, not, not so much uh, these days, but I, but I have done a lot of Python in the past. And when they sent me this, uh, this graphic from XKCD, uh, all the crazy things that you have to do to get your Python environment working, like, I don't know about you, I've had experiences when I just want to write a script, it's fine. But then when you want to do real stuff, it's like, it's a mess. So <laughs> explain to people who, uh, we've got a lot of Python's developers uh, who are listening to the show? Um, explain to people, like you know, what what problem it is you're trying to solve when it comes to setting up Python environments. So I'm sure Python developers all over the world will be empathizing with this particular problem. Um, you'll try to install a Python to do one particular task. Uh, then you'll install another application that'll install another Python for you. You'll forget about the one that you put in the first time. Uh, the system Python will be there as well. And then by the time you've got around to like your fifth or sixth application that you're writing, um, your Python is in such a mess, you have no idea which one you're using, where it's coming from, where the packages are being installed, or anything really about the entire environment. You've just kind of lost track of it. And that's where this uh, this graphic is coming from. It's It's showing... Clearly, this guy's a Mac user, but uh, yeah, it could be anybody. It's it's a mess. Yeah, I mean, I I find like once I install something on Python, like once I install a package, it's on my computer forever. Uh, I don't really have any way of now. Look, I mean, obviously, at, at where I work, we we have something that that resets the state of the world, but it's uh, it can get quite uh, complicated. Yeah, so it, just the case for developers here. Um, there are a number of solutions to this. I mean, so some of them are a little nuclear in that you could go down the whole, right, I'm going to virtualize an entire machine just to run this Python script. Or, you know, you can go the other way and deal with, you can deal with all of this mess your own way. Yeah. So uh, let's go over, like, what are the main critical issues that organizations and people face? Uh, you know, what are some of the reasons why, uh, you know, multiple package management solutions need to exist? They all need to exist because everybody uses them differently. So there's a range of things that work from 
uh, installing packages to your system, and that includes the most popular one being PIP. Uh, they range all the way down to kind of complete virtualization. Um, and then there's a whole range of things in between. And where we sit is in the kind of range in between where we're talking about virtual environments. So uh, can you explain like what is a virtual environment to, for people who don't know? So what that is, is an environment that uh, installs something like Python on your system and a range of packages, but isolates it from all the other Python installations you may have on your system. It works by manipulating environment variables, making sure that there are copies of things. Sometimes there are big farms of symbolic links all over the place. Um, but generally, the idea is that we have something that can run, can interact with your system, but is designed to be isolated from all the other Python environments on the system. Thanks. Yeah, that that clears things up. You know, everybody has multiple. Well, I wouldn't say everybody, but having multiple versions of Python on a system is not uh, not terribly uncommon, I would say. So um, let's talk about PIP. So people say, well, I have PIP that works pretty well. Um, what what's good about PIP, and and wh what are the challenges that um, that you face when just going that route? Well. PIP's great in that PIP is pretty much available everywhere. So everyone who's got Python almost certainly has access to PIP. And what that will do is that will allow you to install whichever packages you like and their dependencies into the installation that your PIP is running from. Now, part of the problem with that is that you might be using one PIP and installing packages to one location, but the actual Python you're using is a different one. So for example, um, if you've got a Python 3 and a Python 2 environment on your system, the pip for Python 2 is just called pip, but the pip for Python 3 is called pip 3. I know. I've literally, I've lost hours on that. Yeah. So if you forget which pip you're using, you could end up installing the packages to the wrong place. And then when you come to run your application, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So tell me about Active State Solution. What are you guys doing? So we have a whole platform uh, backing the resolution of dependencies for Python and other languages. Um, and we have a tool that you can deploy on your system called the state tool, which is designed to interact with our system. And that can generate a, a, a virtual environment for you. So it'll isolate it, and then you can enter it and exit it as you need. As you want to run your application, you activate the environment, and then you, your application is guaranteed to have uh, sole access to a particular runtime environment for Python, um, which has everything that you've asked to put into it uh, and is not affected by anything else on the system. There are other ways to, that, that um, people are, can, sorry, there are other solutions to this. Uh, so the, Python has a whole bunch of them. There's one called pipenv, which does the same sort of thing. But one of the problems we have with pipenv is that it will install all the Python packages. But before you can run it, you need to have Python installed. So it depends on the on a Python already being there. And it depends also, on the Python version. And it does depend on the, on the specific Python version that you've got installed. So, And there are other problems with it as well, uh, one of which is that any underlying libraries. So for example, if you're dealing with XML, you will probably have libxml2 or expats installed somewhere on your system. Uh, that will be shared across all the environments that you set up with pipenv. So pip itself won't go down as far as the C libraries that you need to install in order to support your application. 
Um, but the state tool will. Our platform is designed to work from your requirements right down to what you will basically have installed on a, on a vanilla system. So if you need additional C libraries, we will get those C libraries and we will get the right versions of those C libraries all installed inside your virtual environment for you as well. That's really cool. So where can people go and find out about this and, or, and, and try it out? So you can look on uh, www.activestate.com, but if you want to get into the real stuff, uh, we have platform.activestate.com, which is where you can uh, start to build your first Python uh, application and your first Python runtime environment. Um, and from there, you can download the state tool. And once you've built something on the platform, you can just tell, tell the state tool, state activate, and then the name of your project. And it will download it from our platform. It'll work across Windows, Linux, or Mac. And you'll get the same environment, whichever operating system you're using. Sean, thanks for sharing that with us today. You're welcome. Have a good day. All right. Next week, I have a really great interview with mathematician Ty Dene Bradley. I am, I'm really excited about it. Even if you're not a mathematician, I just I, I, I love how this interview came out. So I really encourage you to tune in to episode 146. Uh, highly suggest you listen to that. Uh, so, um, yeah, coming up next week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.